You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. We're going to be in Matthew 5 once again, closing out the series, uh, starting in uh, verse 13. And so if you don't have a Bible, uh, there are some hardback black ones in the seat pockets in front of you. We'll also have it on the screen behind us in your pew Bible. It's going to be on page 810. Um, And so uh, if and when you get there, If you are willing and able this morning, you can stand with me for the reading of God's word. Once again, Matthew chapter 5, and we'll start in verse 13. So Providence, hear the word of the Lord. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you here to Providence, uh, especially if it's your first time. My name is Court, and I am one of the pastors here at the church. So glad that you made us a part of your week. I'm excited to uh, jump into the text this morning. We've had uh, the awesome opportunity to spend a little bit more time uh, on a smaller portion of text. And so we have spent the last four weeks breaking down just these few verses in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, if you haven't had a chance to listen there in the podcast, I won't spend too much time recapping them, but we spent two weeks talking about salt. So what is salt and, and how do we Uh, embody that identity that Jesus gives us as the salt of the earth. And then the next week we talked about the warning that comes along with that, which is here's the warning that if salt has lost its savor, then it is good for nothing and trampled under the people's feet, you know, and as we talked about how could we avoid that warning. And so last week, Eric talked about light, same idea, what is light, and how can we be the light of the world as Jesus called us. And then this morning, what I want to do is talk about the warning. Now, this warning is not explicit. It's more implicit in the text. But the warning goes something like this. You're the light of the world, and the light is not supposed to be covered or diminished. So the warning would be, guard yourselves from being covered or diminished. And so what's at stake with that? Well, let's just read quickly what Jesus says here that the light will accomplish and what we could ultimately uh, logically bring uh, from that would be that then that won't be accomplished and that would be at stake here. So what does Jesus say the light accomplishes? Apart from what Eric's already given us last week, which he did a fantastic job with, Jesus says this, um, in the same way, let your light shine, verse 16, before others so that they may see your good works give glory to your father who is in heaven. So what's going on here? Uh, your good works uh, is what's at stake. The good that Christians do in the world is at stake when the, when the light does not shine brightly. The glory of God, although the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea because God's sovereign, but we can have a part in trying to diminish the glory of God by letting that light not shine. Uh, and then lastly, what, this in, what it means in totality is that when the Christians shine the light of Christ, people come to know Christ, right? They see your good works, they end up glorifying God. Well, we know you can't glorify God, Romans tells us, without faith. So there's something about being the light of the world that includes an evangelistic bend. And it doesn't even have to do necessarily particularly right here with a proclamation, but it's just a demonstration of your life. Okay, so I wanted to start there to say that's the implicit warning. And what I want to do is talk about how we can avoid it. 
How do we avoid dimming the light? How do we avoid letting the light be covered, the light of Christ in our lives? So before we jump in and do that, let me pray for us. If you will join me in prayer by bowing your heads, I'd love to just ask the Spirit to, to speak to us through his word. Oh, Father, thank you uh, this morning. It's a beautiful day, another wonderful morning that we get to get together to sing about you and to you, to read about you, learn about you, to know you, Jesus. And there's joy there. And so we just thank you that you've given us this opportunity. Lord, I'm, I, I know because I know myself that our, that our hearts are prone to be in a million different directions right now. And so, Holy Spirit, we just ask that you give us focus, give us clarity, help us to aim narrowly at hearing from you this morning, because God, that's really what we want. That's what we're after. And also, God, we ask that you'd help us to not have just cultural ears on, thinking through how the Bible is speaking to culture, but God, to have ears to hear how you're speaking to us so that we might respond to conviction, repent, find life, hope. God, please give us that gift, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so a key this morning as we walk through this, try your best, as I said in my prayer, not to critically consider culture as we walk through this, although we're going to talk a little bit about our culture, but try your best to reflectively consider your own heart and what part the culture has played in shaping our hearts to not actually view our lives biblically, but instead that we're looking through another lens that we don't recognize. Like the Bible says, judgment should begin at the household of God. We read that in First Peter. You know, Paul teaches the Corinthian church that we shouldn't be about the business of judging outsiders because why would we expect outsiders to live according to what God has said when they have not had their eyes open to the gospel, but that we should be actually looking inward saying, are we living our lives according to what we know is true? And, and that's what I'd like to do here as best as we can, as the cultural prophets say, stay in our own lane. All right, that's what I want you to try to do. Stay in your own lane this morning and ask, like, what, is the, what does this mean for me? Where am I needing for the word of God to be as sharp as a two-edged sword, you know, for my good? So we can fall prey to appealing to the truth only on the terms that we agree with. This is what the Pharisees did, right? Like they knew the truth, but they only really appealed to the truth in the terms that made them look good. And we've got to make sure that we don't fall prey to that, that we want to know the truth even when it stings. We want to know the truth even if it's not going to be comfortable for us because we ultimately trust that the truth sets us free. That's what Jesus said, that there's the spirit of truth who opens our eyes to what is true and then that's the truth sets us free. So we have to have an aim this morning that we would actually allow that to kind of grind up against our own proclivities to sin, not just the cultures, okay? All right, now. What I want to talk about is culturally, what is the most prominent religion? Because if, I don't know if you've noticed it, but I've noticed it. We're becoming more religious as a culture, not less. Uh, and what I mean by that is we have beliefs. Uh, and I mean particularly American culture because we're Americans, but also just generally you can even get localized with this. Even if you look at numbers and you see that church attendance goes down, what I mean is that there's a new religion, which is a religion of self, that everyone's kind of jumping on board with. And we've, we have our own, like, superstitions along with this religion. There's new uh, ways that we catechize one another in this religion. There's new sacrifices that we make to this religion. There's new, new prayers that are called vibes. I don't know if you've found out about this, but you can also vibe, not just pray. And these are new things, right? And so 
The easiest example of this about 10 to 15 years ago, and she was commonly uh, quoted in a lot of sermons, maybe even some of mine, was Oprah. You know, she had new age spirituality, and she kind of had gone from an evangelical Christian at the beginning of her career, and she had moved into this whole other realm and space of new age spirituality. And so a lot of pastors hopped on that and just said, look how ridiculous this is, and a lot of jokes, and, you know, and, and Oprah will give you a car, but she can't give you any truth, you know, that kind of stuff. But nonetheless, I do think if you start with her, you can kind of start to uh, unpack a little bit of where we've been and where we're going. Because Oprah's ideology was essentially you would understand the self by basing, by, by tapping into uh, like Mother Earth, this divine uh, source. You could call it God if you wanted to. She was okay with that. But that ultimately everybody could just tap into this source. And then beyond that, it was kind of like a buffet style, like grab what works for you. So you could kind of add a little bit from what Christianity offered, maybe a little bit from what Buddhism offers, and a little bit from what Islam offers, or a little bit from, you know, uh, Zoroastrianism, whatever you wanted to do. And you could build your own religion because it fit you, and this is your thing. And so the concept of the self had shifted so much that the self was not in submission to God, but ultimately everything was in submission to the self. This is where you started to get things like when we talked to our kids, it wasn't so much about duty in the culture or duty with your family. It was about you live your own life. You do whatever you want to do. You're a snowflake. You're perfect. You know, you're uniquely awesome, which that's half true, right? They are uniquely awesome. We love our kids, but we don't teach them necessarily that there are things that they ought to do. We just say, you do whatever you want, you free American. And that's how we are. And so it breeds into this kind of like new age spirituality and Today, you can almost entirely sum up our cultural class with examples of this. It would almost be untenable untenable for me to try to do it. I could just continue on and on and on and go through Twitter and show you. Be like, oh, yeah, that. Oh, yeah, that. It's everywhere. Examples of, like, you know, best-selling Kim Kardashian book, Selfie, kind of wraps it all up. Both Kim Kardashian and Selfie and best-selling book. All of those things. Why? And it's because of the religion of self, right? The religion of self has kind of taken over. And this is key because culture is ultimately determined by mass acceptance to ideas. Ideas have consequences. And what most people accept most of the time becomes the culture. And so the current religion that started to take hold is Oprah's framework built into a secular, pragmatic, uh, new wave that has come. It's something like this. Everything's acceptable so long as you don't proclaim that there's any superiority to any objective truth. So everything's acceptable as long as you're not saying that yours is superior to mine. Now, the shift that started with Oprah has gone into a new orthodoxy that says something like this. And I believe this is not a bug in the system, but a feature to the system. It goes something like this. Not only is it not okay for everybody to have different views as long as they're not subjective, but now... The New Age self-religion encourages silencing, shaming, and persecution towards all objective claims and even subjective ones unless it follows a rigid orthodoxy of ideas. And so it's kind of scary, right? We've seen some of this stuff on the news. You probably watch the news. It really doesn't matter which news channel you watch. You can kind of say, wow, this is kind of freaking me out a little bit. And where is it coming from? And that's what I want to do this morning is I'm not diving into politics. What I want to dive into is where does it come from? How should the church respond and how much of it has already infiltrated you and I, and I put myself underneath that, without us even knowing. So one thing to acknowledge is that this is not new. Christianity has always recognized this, not as one destructive heresy among many, but as the root of all destructive heresy. And I'll tell you what I mean in a second. When you make man the measure of all things, you're neglecting it. That's the very way that sin entered into the world in the Garden of Eden in the first place. We have now mainstreamed the ideology of the serpent into culture unwittingly. 
You know, Jesus shows up in his day and he kind of confronts this directly because Jesus makes direct truth claims that everybody's, you know, everybody acknowledges that Jesus is exclusive and inclusive simultaneously. He says things like whosoever will come to me will have everlasting life. And then he says, but they must what? Repent. Or he, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is the gospel? Repent. And then in John 15, he says this, you, I call you my friends, which we've all quoted that before, comma, if you do what I tell you. That's there, by the way, if you do what I command you. So Jesus has this exclusive and inclusive way of teaching, and he just directly confronts this cultural ideology. Eric was talking last Sunday, and uh, he taught that the church, um, since Jesus himself is the light, we reflect his light into the world. And, and, and Eric was talking about how, how God's intention and plan was to shine his light through us forever and ever and ever and ever, and not to hide ourselves under a bushel. Now, like I mentioned at the beginning, the inherent warning here is that we can hide ourselves under a bushel or be hidden. What was, what was uh, briefly talked about last week that I'd like to mention is in the early parts of Genesis, there's this story of creation where God creates the greater light and the lesser light. The greater light being the sun, the lesser light being the moon. And of course, there is a lot that we could say about that. But one of the allegories with this, of course, is that, you know, the moon itself is a ball of dust that doesn't have a source of light. It merely reflects the light of the sun into the night. And the sun itself is the great source of light, right? And as science has progressed over time, we've recognized that rather than, rather than our galaxy or our solar system, rather, being a Earth-centered solar system, that we're actually a heliocentric. We, we actually pivot around this, the light source, not vice versa, pivot around the Earth. And so... The allegory, of course, is that Christ calls himself the light of the world, the greater light, and that you and I are also called the light of the world, the lesser light. We don't have any light in and of ourselves, but we're made from dust. But we try to keep ourselves in communion with and in the, great, the light of the greater light in order to do what? To shine light into the darkness of what? The world. That's the idea here, right? Now, there is a phenomenon called eclipses. Right? You guys know these, and they're even in the Bible, too. And what eclipses are is when the earth, or let's say the world, comes in between the greater and the lesser light. And what is the result? Darkness. So to give you an idea of how this might work in relation to our text is when self or the world comes in between the lesser light, which is you and I, and the greater light breaking communion in some way, then it covers the light or there's a bushel, there's a covering, it dims the light. It doesn't mean that Christ is less bright than he was, just like the sun doesn't get dimmer at night. You know, my son kind of thinks that he thinks the sun goes night, night. So he thinks it just kind of cl clicks out. That's not what happens with an eclipse either. Still as bright as it has ever been, it is covered, it is shielded by something. In an eclipse, it's the earth, which I think is an allegory to the, first, the reason that we thought we were earth-centered in the first place, which is that when we stand in the way of God, the light goes out. It gets dim, right? We see this uh, maybe most prevalently in the story of Babel as one of the first things that the first society does that's really unified around an idea is they want to build a tower to the heavens so that they can basically make a name for themselves. This is ultimately a manifestation of what we currently are experiencing right now in our culture, which is self-religion. The love of self. And I want to say that that's gone all the way back to the garden. So it's, it's important for Christians not to get bought into, however it is titled currently, uh, all of the different ideologies. We have to go to the scriptures and say, no, no, no. Like, like, like the Bible speaks clearly to this. It may have many different masks, but all of this is ultimately love of self. 
Which brings me to my, my very first point, which is light is primarily hidden by the love of self. The light of Christ is primarily hidden by the love of self. I want to read John chapter 3, starting in verse number 16. You guys got to know where that is, or I'm not doing a good job as a pastor. So please tell me you know. One of the most famous scriptures in all the Bible, and this is what Jesus says. This is red letters as he's speaking to Nicodemus. Speaking to the Pharisee, and he says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. For God didn't send his son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Now watch verse 19 here. It's key. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than the light. It's really interesting. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. What are you after here, Jesus? Well, I think he's giving us an indication that humanity loves darkness more than they love light, which explains his crucifixion. It's what he told his disciples is that they don't love me because they don't love light. Or he, will, or he then turns to them and says, they will hate you because they hate me. And they hate me because they hate the Father. Well, that's really intense, right? That's like, it's not a great evangelism message. I don't know if you guys have ever tried. That doesn't win over souls. But it's what Jesus did. He said, ultimately, there is in the human condition of sin, a part of us that hates the light. We're not interested in it. Now, this seems odd because why would anybody want to walk around in the dark? If you've ever hit your shin in the middle of the night, you kind of get this, right? It's like, why would anybody want that? And Jesus says, here's why. Because light exposes that which we are unwilling to confront and deal with, and most importantly, unwilling to stop. It exposes that which we're unwilling to confront, because once we confront it, we have to recognize that it's sin. And once it's sin, then we're culpable. And once we're culpable, we have to do something about it. And deeply what Jesus is saying is that we might love sin more than we love light, or him. And I want to take it just a step further. We might love self more than we love him. We might love our own gratification, the way it feels, the way it's, we're experiencing it, is what Jesus says. And that when we experience these things, even though deep down we know these things are unhealthy, wrong, they're not obedient to God, we don't want the light to show up because then the light, to use Eric's analogy, it's like when he locked eyes with that animal and that creature in his house. You lock eyes with your sin and you're like, ooh, I got to deal with that. It's the closet in your house that you throw everything into when everybody comes over. You don't want to go in there. Because then you have to deal with it. Like as soon as you open it, it all just piles out. That's our hearts. So how does God expose the darkness with the light? I think this is pretty clear in all of scripture. I wish we had more time to try to unpack it. But the spirit of truth is how God exposes the darkness. The light of God is the truth of God animated and activated by the spirit of God. I'll explain this a little bit further. But very simply put, God exposes darkness with his word, with his spirit as the messenger. So whether it be preaching or whether it be teaching or whether it be you reading your own Bible or whether it be memory of the reading of the scripture that comes to you in a moment, that's how God exposes that which is dark in us. And it's always coming on the wings of the spirit, which is what God has given us as a gift when we were saved. God fills us with his spirit. When he fills us with his spirit, he has given us the vehicle through which we can actually hear, understand, and recognize the word of truth. What's actually true about the world? What's true about God? What's true about you and me? And let me tell you something, friends. God is not silent about these things. He has not left you in the dark about these things. 
God's been very clear about these things. In the book of Romans says, since the creation of the world, God's been clear about who he is and that you and I are prone to suppress the truth because darkness exposes. So for the church, we gotta recognize that just because we are saved and justified doesn't mean the power of sin is still not trying to grapple with us and still not trying to convince you and me that darkness is better than light. That's the way we get covered, okay? So the light of the church, I think, and hear me on this, this might be the most important part of this first point. I think the light of the church is being dimmed and diminished because the church, whether wittingly or unwittingly, has been cooperating with culture by putting human beings in the place of moral and spiritual authority and thereby affirming the worship and love of self. I think the church, unknowingly or knowingly, has said, we get to decide what the moral truth is, not the scriptures, not God. And when we do that, we are now putting ourselves in the place of God. It is the original sin. We do it through a myriad of ways, but I really want to drive down into this because it may seem like I'm being harsh, but I promise you, this might be one of the more important things that we catch as we enter into this new season of this brave new world we're heading into. Okay, so I want to use an example. There's two councils. One's actually not called a council, but I did because it seems helpful. The first one is called the Jerusalem Council in the book of Acts chapter 15. The early church apostles are given this intense task to try and merge the Gentiles with the Jews into this new religion of Christianity. You got the Jews who hate the Gentiles. The Gentiles are pretty, you know, they're not like, they're a little salty with the Jews. Okay, let's just say that's putting it euphemistically. And then you have Samaritans. Christ has come and basically said, there is no longer male nor female, Greek nor Scythian, slave, but all in Christ, we're all one. Ephesians 2, all the, all the barriers are brought down. And so we're all going to worship together. Now you can say that sounds wonderful. And some of that is because we live in America. It's pretty diverse. Listen, that was not wonderful for the time. It was very difficult. Tons of prejudices were brought in. It's why God regularly has his apostles talk about partiality and prejudice and hatred and loathing and judgment. <laughs> It's because this was regular in the church. So the apostles have this task with this very fragile baby church that's getting persecuted to get together in Acts 15 and make a decision. What should we expect the Gentile Christians to do in public worship? Because the Jews were getting angry that they weren't circumcising their children. They were getting angry that they were uh, eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, before you get really intense with the Gentiles, think of yourself when you first came to know Christ. Did you ever show up to church and do things? And people were like, oh my gosh. And you're like, that was normal for me. Anybody else? Okay, just me? All right, I can move on. I did all kinds of things. I said things. I remember my first, like, uh, small group in, in student ministry. I was cursing. Just regular. It was like a regular part of my language, vernacular. And I remember later on, loving leader came alongside me. He's like, hey, man, like, you probably need to chill out with what you're doing. It's like, okay, no problem. I, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend anybody. Then we went to Taco Bell afterwards, and I asked for a water, and I got soda. And he's like, hey, man, you can't steal. I'm like, what do you mean stealing? Have you seen the taxes on this stuff? I'm like, this is fair and square. I had to stop stealing. I could continue on like this. And that's what ha was happening with the Gentiles. There were all these different things that they were all new to them. And so the disciples get together and they ask this question. What should we do with this new church to honor God's commands, but to also grapple with this cultural moment? And that's the council. And they come up with basically these handful of rules. Don't eat food sacrificed to idols or strangled or, you know, don't basically do things that are idolatry is the big issue. Um, and then that's it. So they're, they're trying to keep the gospel as primary while also setting some parameters and guidelines. Now, there's a second council. And again, it's not necessarily a council, but let's say it's a conversation and I think it's a council. And it happened in the Garden of Eden. And it's where the serpent shows up to speak with Eve. Adam's late to the meeting like all men and begins to discuss with him. Uh, she, or she, the serpent begins to discuss with her, 
what could be offered to her if she were to eat of the fruit of the tree. Now, what they have to do, though, is they have to ration through how do we uh, deal with the commands of God. And so it almost seems like they're some mirroring here, right? They're, all, they're discussing the commands of God together. They're trying to figure it out. But here's what I want to point out. There's a totally different aim in these two councils. The Jerusalem council is aimed at honoring God and his commands. The council in the Garden of Eden is, is aimed at undermining God, even though they're both talking about scripture. I say this because this is what we have to be careful with as the church. Just because we read the Bible and just because we talk about the Bible doesn't mean we're looking to honor the God of the Bible. By honoring the God of the Bible, I mean being faithful to what he has said and the truths that he has given, not redefining those truths in order to fit our own ideology, our own desires. The biggest issue here becomes the relation to truth and authority. And I know that our culture in this generation hates the idea of authority, but here's what I need to tell you. It is not only a part of the Bible, it is a central part of the Bible. The first thing you learn, Genesis chapter one, verse one, is there's a God and it's not you. That's the starting line. In the beginning, God. Where am I at? Not here yet. In fact, he's gonna wait until the very last day so you don't get to take credit for anything before it. That's the starting line of the Bible. God exists and he commands. Now you can be angry at that and I think God's gracious with you in your anger. But one thing you can't do is try to redefine that and say, no, God's much more of a collaborator. Maybe in the Trinity, not with you. And this is important because if you think God's collaborating with you on what is actually true, you will lead yourself into a shipwreck of faith and many churches already have. And I don't say that with any sort of glee. I say that with real sadness. The Bible teaches us that God's truth is freedom, life, peace, and joy. The commandments of God offer us this. However, you can never really get to the beauty of God's truth in your life unless you have that initial recognition that God has the authority to command you. Because when he starts commanding you to do something, and it's something that you don't like, or that you don't want to do, or you don't believe is true, you will always stop seeking him for greater clarity and understanding, and you'll start seeking other avenues through which you can get what you want. Namely, through redefining what he has said in euphemistic ways that make no sense to most people, and yet we accept them because we agree with each other that we like our own way. I know that sounds harsh, but how many things do we say about the Bible to reshift it from what it plainly says, and we agree on, yeah, maybe that's true, because we love ourselves, not because it's actually what the Bible says. We know what the Bible's saying. We're just like, well, you know, technically in the Greek, no. You know, technically, you know, if in the context, no. Maybe sometimes. It's really rare, though. It's really rare. I'm just being honest. It's really rare. And I say this for help and for freedom, not to be arrogant. I know my own heart. I would like to say, well, you know, the Bible says this one thing, but I, I think we can figure out a better way. That's the original sin. There is no better way. Since I haven't been controversial enough, let me get really controversial. Let's consider a major cultural issue of our time, sexuality and gender. Now, I want to say this with honesty and, and with grace. Um, not only have most of the conversations surrounding these issues in the church become completely devoid of scripture itself, but we even miss the entire intent that undergirds the conversations in themselves um, when we talk about this stuff. The issue has an inherent desire at its core when we talk sexuality and gender, when we want to redefine it. And I think it is this. Every desire that moves beyond the biblical narrative wants to upend that which has been long, cons long considered historically right or true. If we miss that, we miss something kind of important. I might be, like, well, who cares? The people could have been wrong for, you know, however many thousands of years. I want to posit to you that that's maybe arrogant. Just maybe. Maybe you're not like the apex of human intellect. 
and neither am I. There's a lot to say about this claim, but I want to focus on the Christian perspective. Scripture does not affirm complete bodily autonomy. Instead, the Bible says things like this. God is a creator. He has a claim on your body and your soul. One of the first things that the Westminster Catechism says is, what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but we belong to God, both body and soul. It's the very first thing we te- they taught their kids. So you belong to God. And he has reserved the right to command us and give us boundaries about our inner life. And check this out. This is going to really frustrate you and your outer life. Not just what you do in here, which New Age Spiritism is like, yeah, okay, okay. Also what you do with these. What you do with this, <laughs> you, you, you might be like, that's not fair. I get to do what, what I want to do because I'm free. Listen, you're not even that free. What if you punch someone tomorrow at work that really makes you mad? Are they just going to be like, oh, I appreciate your freedom? No. God has also given us boundaries, and you can disagree with them, but you have to, I think as Christians, you should disagree with them on the bounds that you also recognize he still gets to command you. And he's gracious. You know, he wrestles with Jacob because he's, rest, he's willing to wrestle with you. He's just not willing for you to pretend that he said something he didn't. So an example would be when God says, do not murder, he means that we can't use our body to harm another person that snuffs their life out, correct? Now, I know you're probably like in the technological age, you're like, I know plenty of ways I don't have to use my body to kill people. And I'm like, listen, Miyagi, that's for you. I think this is basic though. Can't use your body in ways that harm another person and snuff the life out. That's God commanding your bodily function. He also commands us on the positive end. He says things like, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And everybody's like, I like that command more, right? But it's still a command on your body. Romans 12 goes on to say, glorify God with your body, that your body is a living sacrifice. First Corinthians 6, you were bought with a price. Your body was bought with a price, not just your soul. So for the Christians, when we think of this culturally, the light of God's word exposes our sinful proclivity to fulfill its own desires and to crush underfoot the desires of God and others. Light exposes this in order that we might repent and find life. Listen to me. If we try to redefine that, you take away repentance, you take away life. The answer is not to, not to blunt the edges that God has sharpened. The answer is to lovingly and graciously Offer over the scalpel to the surgeon who can do heart surgery. Now, we don't try to wield swords that we have no business wielding, but the word of God stands timeless, and we have no business messing with it. The book of Revelation actually ends like this. He who adds to this book, may it be added to him the plagues of this book. Now, you might say, well, that's just for the book of Revelation. You can believe that? I got this feeling that in God's providence, he put that at the end of this whole book for a reason, just thinking. He also says, if you take away from this book, that there is cursing for this. So the church has to instead decide that we decided to begin a long dialogue working over time to redefine what God has said in order to confirm the word, not to confirm the word of God, but to confirm our own will and our own word. And that we took God's word in many various ways and we tried to shape it into our own image. And the church has to repent for that. The church has to say, we should never have done that. And listen to me now to go back to what I said in the very beginning. And we individually have to acknowledge where we do that. And we have to say, God, forgive us where we want you to be more like us. God wants you to be more like him. And sometimes we're like, well, this is once again, the new age religion. Well, God, you know, To me, God's like, I just want to stop you right there. To you, God's like you. And to Jimmy, God's like Jimmy. And to Sue, God's like Sue. And that's why none of your gods get along, and it's probably why you don't get along. 
because we're not conforming to the same image of the same creator. And therefore, we have a whole lot more division and strife in the church than we ought. There's only one God, and there's only one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible tells us. He never changes. God has not changed his mind on a thing. He didn't create the world and then say, you know what? I got to edit this because Harvard did a review. There was a scientific study that came out. There's a Trinitarian conference. We got to change the Bible. Never did it happen, nor will it ever happen. Now, is there such a thing as a good faith debate around scripture? Yes, it's called Acts 15, not Genesis 3. So I just want to make that point. We have good faith debates around the scriptures in areas that we don't see. We see through a glass dimly. We don't know everything. But Genesis 3 was about the only command we had and redefining it. Do you see the difference here? One's a good faith discussion about how we can really honor God. The other one is a discussion about how we can undermine God and get around him. And those are drastically different, even though they look the same. And you might be saying, well, Court, that's not very open-minded of you. And I'm like, listen, I'm all about open-minded. It's just not enough that your brain falls completely out. Don't be illogical. There are some things that we know, and God has been very clear about them. Okay, I got to put it into overdrive here. So what's the application point? The church has to take a stand on foundational truths of the scriptures. That, that, that the scriptures ultimately are only standard for morality, our only message of hope. John Piper said it best. He pulled his Bible over his head. He said, when the Bible rules a family, rules a church, rules a people, then God ultimately rules. When you take the Bible away, only power rules. Who is more persuasive? Who is more powerful? Who is stronger? Who's more manipulative? Who's more deceitful? Who's more serpent-like wins? So don't think abandoning the Bible is going to get us a better thing. It only gets you a better thing until the strong man shows up to tell you what you ought to think. See, the Bible is not something to be dismissed. Okay, number two, light's hidden by misconstruing isolation and fear with silence and solitude. So this is really clear in the scripture, right? Jesus says, don't put the light under the bushel. Now, I want to say this. Silence and solitude are essential. It's some of those important virtuous disciplines that we find in the scriptures, and our culture is bereft of them. So I'm not trying to make any enemies of silence and solitude. We don't spend enough time shutting up, especially me, and we don't spend enough time alone with God. Now, having said that, there can be something that's misconstrued where we think that being alone watching Netflix equals silence and solitude, and we just like that a whole lot more. Quarantine has encouraged it, and I love it in the worst possible ways. And so what it actually does is it isolates us, makes us afraid to speak out and be courageous and actually live our faith in a demonstrable way in front of a world that could see your good works and glorify your God who is in heaven. Christians are a people of proclamation and demonstration. They, go, they proclaim the gospel boldly. They proclaim the gospel humbly. Humbly, they demonstrate the gospel lovingly. They demonstrate the gospel consistent, consistently. In order to do that, we have to actually be around people. We gotta be courageous. We gotta do that. If we don't, then ultimately we put a lid on our own light. The world has sought to silence the testimony of the church for thousands of years. I want you friends, especially if you're Christians, think through the heritage of your faith. So many have bled so that the gospel would move forward, so that the gospel would not be silenced. Many have went into martyrdom for that very purpose. And we carry that heritage with us. And what I believe we can do, not just to honor them, but to honor Christ who went to the cross for us, is to be courageous enough to both declare and demonstrate the gospel boldly in our sphere of influence. You don't have to be a Messiah. We just have to know that's part of God's command for us. You know, one thing that's really encouraged in our day is to have your own private faith. I just don't see that in the scriptures. I'm sorry. Christianity certainly isn't that. It's like there's no such thing as like the private faith of Christianity. The closest thing you can get is Paul telling the Thessalonians they should live quiet lives peacefully. And I'm all about quiet, peaceful lives. I just think that Paul didn't do a very good job of it. <laughs> 
he wasn't all that quiet and peaceful when he showed up into Corinth and started riots or Ephesus. You know, he was very bold about the gospel. Okay, now, I don't have time to do it, but there's this story in Acts chapter 4. This is right after the Holy Spirit comes. There's a mass evangelism. Peter's preaching. You know, he had just basically betrayed the Lord. Now he's bold and proclaiming the word of God. The only difference between then and now is the Spirit filled him, you know? Like he's just, he's just out there preaching. And he's, and he's preaching some bold sermons. Like he's standing in front of the people that were like at the crucifixion. He says, this Jesus whom you crucified, you did it. It was your deal. It's like, Peter, calm down, bro. Like, there's <laughs> a different way to do this. He doesn't. He just goes right at him. And in Acts chapter four, they get fed up with it. They bring Peter, James, and John into the prisons and they say, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And they beat them. There's one of my favorite lines in all of the book of Acts is verses 19 through 20, where Peter looks at the guards and says, you can judge for yourself whether, whether it is better for us to obey man or to obey God, but for us, we will continue preaching the gospel. And then it says they walked out of the room where the magistrates stand there with their mouths open and they praise God. We got to suffer for the name. Just one of my favorite stories in all of scripture. First of all, because it's convicting and I am not that guy, but I want to be. I want to be that guy. I want to be that guy that feels that way like they did. And so it brings me to this question for you, which I think might be, might be one of the more important ones that we hear this morning. Whose opinion of you matters most in your life? Really think about it. It's okay if we're honest, our spouse, our loved ones, our boss, our dad, our mom, Maybe like one that I have found to be really prevalent in a lot of our culture, which is a ghost on social media, the nameless, faceless mob that we want their approval. We don't even know who they are. They don't really know who we are. We just know we want their approval. To the church, to the Christian, God's opinion is the most important opinion that you should ever consider. What C.S. Lewis would say, it's not so much about my theology, what I think about God. It's about what God thinks about me, which presses me to want to have good theology. I want to please God, and therefore I want to know him. But he's so on to something. What's more important on judgment day? God's opinion of you, not others' opinion of you. Most important day of your life is going to be the day after your last day. The day after your last day, we're all going to wake up and now we stand before God. And whose opinion mattered the most to us? Who do, who do we shape our time around, our schedules around? And are we going to be standing there going, oh, who cares about that egg on Twitter? The avatar egg. You guys know what I'm talking about. The person you don't even know, he just trolls. Who's going to care? I want to level with you. I am not immune to the desire to want approval. I'm a human being. I want you to like me right now. And I'm saying all sorts of unlikable stuff. And there's a part of me that lurches against that. It's like, oh, Court, why would you do that? And part of that's just the Lord. He makes me say things that I don't want to say all the time. But part of it, a very small shred that I'm hoping to encourage and grow, is that I want to honor God. In the end, I want to stand before God, and God would say, well done, good and faithful servant. Why? Because you, you said true things about me. You told people true things. You actually displayed my glory. What does that mean? I was an actual mirror of the glory of God, imperfect, but as clear as I could be. To preach the right as far as I could see the right and understand the right according to the word. This is the opinion that should matter most to us. As a pastor, I'm not going to be judged about whether or not I hurt people's feelings, but whether or not I offended the one true, holy, and almighty God. If I offend him, woe is me. I'm gonna, here's, what, here's the promise. I'm going to offend people because it's inevitable. Some of it's, in, some of it's uh, 
because I was preaching the truth. Some of it's because I'm a failure in some areas. I can't avoid offending man, but can I avoid offending a holy God? I'll try my best. I think of the conviction of Martin Luther when he stands on trial before the Catholic Church and he is basically demanded to recant. He says, recant what you have to say or else. And he's threatened with all these things. And, and here is his, is his words. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor, st- nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. And he stands before the Pope saying that. Now, Martin Luther had said some pretty harsh stuff. He called the Pope the Antichrist. It was tough. It was a rough time. I'm not saying that everything Martin Luther said was good. But what he's saying here is I'm really convicted about this. I believe this. This is true. And to go against your conscience is neither right nor safe. What does he mean by safe? It's dangerous to lie to yourself. Because no one lies to you more than you lie to you. And no one's more dangerous that lies to you than when you lie to you. Of course, Martin Luther would go on to say, peace if at all possible, but truth at all costs. That's the kind of man that he was. He says, I want peace with people if at all possible, but I'll die for the truth. He says, if I had to choose, I'll take truth. Okay, now I'm going to close with this, and I think that this might be maybe the most helpful part. I hope I've already gone over. Revelation chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. So the last one here is actually, it's, it's a tough warning, but I think it's a really gracious warning from the Lord Jesus. So on one hand, when we reject truth, we can hide the light. Whenever we try to live our lives isolated, we can hide the light. This last one is probably the most glaring. And as a pastor, I'll tell you the most scary. The light is always removed from every local church by the Lord Jesus when they dishonor him for long enough. I'll read to you Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This is red letter words. To the angel, this is Jesus speaking, to the church in Ephesus. So there's a church in Ephesus that the angel's coming to deliver this message from Christ. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands, that is Christ. Jesus says, I know your works, Ephesus, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did it first. This is key right here. If not, I will show up. I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus says, I'll cut the lights off in the church if you don't hear me. That's a scary warning. Now this is going to offend all of us who are religious, including me. So I'll go ahead and jump in here. I hate evil. I hate heresy. I will never give into this cultural madness. You turn on the news. You're like, look at this propaganda machine. I'll go to the gulags if I have to. Jesus visited the Ephesians and he said to them, you have a lot of great characteristics, but you've abandoned your love for me. And therefore I'm coming to turn the lights off unless you repent. Of everything that I've said regarding truth, you need to hear me on this. Self-worship doesn't just manifest in an intellectual redefinition of truth. It also manifests in a spiritual amnesia regarding our love. When we forget where God found us, we stop loving like Jesus. And he cares about love. He cares about truth and he cares about love. And they are intermarried, okay? If you've ever tried to get in between me and my wife in our marriage, you're gonna have a problem. When you try to get in between truth and love and make them divorced from one another, God has a problem with that. They are together. 
And if the Ephesians thought they could just be truth people and not be love people. And Jesus shows up and says, you got a lot of great characteristics. I'm on my way. I want to say, when God met me to, to apply Ephesians, or apply Revelation here, and I hope you can apply it too. When God met me, I was not in need of mere tweaks to my personality to save me. I may have never been able to tell you all of my story, but let me just share with you. I loved me more than any single person in the world when God met me. I mean, it wasn't even close. My plans were about me. My desires were about me. My conversations were about me. My hopes were about me. My daily schedule was about me. And I had become a master at masking that with a bunch of virtues and, and, and cultural ways to make people think that I was nice. But really, it was about me. I cared about me. To quote the great Terrell Owens, the theologian of our time, I loved me some me. That was when God met me. Jesus found me in that absolutely reprehensible state, and he loved me. He rescued me when I was unlovable. I want to ask you, when you look around at our world and you see the systems, you see the structures, you see the image bearers around you, are you disgusted or are you broken in love for your fellow man? We're not only going to be held accountable to how truthful we are, we're going to be held accountable to how we love. At Providence, yes, we want to be known for truth, but we want our community to be a radical expression of people committed to love. It looks like this, a culture of forgiveness over judgment in the church, a culture of relationships over argument in the church, a culture of encouragement over criticism, a culture of generosity over selfishness, a culture of patience over reaction. The question that I want to leave you with is who are you praying for? Who are you serving? Who are you caring for? Who in your life are you so invested in that tears well up in your eyes when you see tear, tears in theirs? That laughter goes from ear to ear when you see them smile. Their failures cause you to hurt deeply and their successes cause you to almost jump for joy. Is it anyone outside of what's going on right here in between these two ears? Because Christ wants to turn our eyes outwardly. We can be truth people that don't ever look up from ourselves. And I just want to say, that'll snuff out the light equally as quick. This time in human history can really harden your hearts. I think quarantine was trying to do that to all of us. We have to fight against it with everything we have. I don't think it's coincidental that on the cross of Christ, what happens? Some of you might even be knowing where I'm going. There was an eclipse on the cross of Christ. It says from the 12th hour to the 3rd hour, there was darkness over the whole land. Why? I believe that what's happening is that Christ, as he told the soldiers, he says, this is your hour under the power of darkness. He drinks our self-worship dry and then dies for it so that you and I don't have to be enslaved to self anymore. He takes and absorbs that hour of darkness so that we can be the light of the world. We don't have to be chained to that. There should be so much gratitude in our hearts to look at the, the living Christ on the cross, enduring the darkness so that you could be the light, enduring forsakenness so that you could be welcomed in. It means that God always utilizes times of great human darkness to be marked by incredible movements of redemption. And we can take a lot of hope in that, friends. If you look at the culture and you're like, oh man, that's the end of it. Only if you don't know Jesus. Because Jesus has a way of looking in this and saying, oh, this is where I'm going to get started. Because the light shines brightest in the darkness. I pray this morning you make that decision that what God thinks about you is the most important opinion in your entire life. And that in Christ, let me tell you the good news. He says this, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. If you'll stand to your feet.
Father, I confess to you, um, we need you to give us the encouragement that we need to walk in this life, not with perfection, but with progress. Progress to you, Jesus, to be more like you, to think more like you. We want to think your thoughts after you've thought them, Lord. We want to feel how you felt. And when we meet people, we want to feel how you feel about them. And we know that there is no way apart from your matchless grace. So Holy Spirit, would you come now, cause us to repent so that we can be shaped and formed into your image. Cause us to not be afraid of that which stings because it heals. And Lord, I pray that you would just guard the people under the sound of my voice and even myself from the condemnation of the enemy. He is a crafty liar. And I pray you guard us from that. Let sweet conviction run its course that we might bear much fruit for your name. In Jesus' name. Amen.